Hi, I'm Lindsay Jacobs. And this is Rachel Weiskadel. And welcome to another episode of the Jero Psychology Podcast, where we talk about all things Jero. Today, we're going to be talking about disparities and discrimination in the COVID era. The things that we talk about today are based on information that Rachel and I gathered during our review of the current literature and just looking up some resources on COVID and how it's affecting older adults and minority populations. So I'm going to just put this disclaimer out there that we are by no means I think, considered experts on this topic. We've just really been learning a lot while reading, and we just wanted to share our newfound knowledge with you guys. So this was originally going to be one episode, you know, focusing on disparities and discrimination in the COVID era. But there is so much to cover on this topic and all these different subtopics that we actually have split it into at now it's at least two episodes we'll see if (laughs) if it expands even more Um, (laughs) but the way that Lindsay and I have also structured these COVID-19 themed episodes that we've each kind of taken the lead on researching particular aspects of these topics and so today Lindsay has done an incredible job of putting together a really robust literature review of all this stuff that's been rapidly coming out about the discrimination and health disparities with COVID-19 and so I am lucky enough to be able to learn from all this information that she's gathered while in future episodes um, we'll also talk about things such as grief where I'll be able to kind of return that favor and we can talk about it uh, in that context as well. Thank you so much, Rachel. (laughs) I appreciate that compliment. I am sure that there are topics, subtopics within this larger topic, this subject area that I have missed. And so just like Rachel and I mentioned in the last episode, we would love to hear from you, the listeners, Uh, If you have any additional knowledge to add, and also if we have stated something that might be incorrect, we know that as data continues to come in, things are changing. And so right now, as we're recording this, um, it's probably going to be a couple of weeks before we actually release it. So who knows? It might be outdated at that point. We apologize in advance. (laughs) It really might. I mean, there is so much that I'm learning every day, even just like by reading the news and by, you know, reading like different newsletters and listservs that I'm on. I mean, it's incredible how much is coming out recently. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, we would love to hear back from anyone. And as a reminder, the way that you can reach us to give us some feedback is you can go to the Jero Psychology Podcast website, which is www.thejeropsychologypodcast.com. And there's a section in the website where you can contact us and leave us a message. That will send a message straight to our inbox, our email inbox. And also, we are on Twitter. So as Rachel and I, discussed, or as she taught me at the la- in the last episode, you can at us on Twitter <laughs> at 
the Jero podcast. So today we're going to be talking specifically about COVID-related health disparities in older adults. And this has also brought about discussion of ageism. There are a lot of examples of discrimination that we've seen in the way the news is reporting COVID-19, the way it's being received and discussed in social media, and even in some uh, scientific publications and scientific discussion or trials. And so one of the themes that we've seen a lot is ageism in terms of discrimination as it relates to COVID-19. And that is going to be our primary focus of discussion today. But what we have also been talking a lot about and been reading a lot about is COVID-related health disparities in racial and ethnic minorities. And so that is something that is such a big topic that we have decided to dedicate, you know, an entire episode to the topic of that form of discrimination in particular, which will be our, our next episode. Yep. So this is part one. So definitely stay tuned for part two. So uh, I think maybe the best place to start for today's episode is just to talk about how COVID-19 has disproportionately affected older adults. So we're learning that there are certain underlying health conditions that make people more susceptible to having a more severe case of COVID and having to be hospitalized because of COVID for treatment and also underlying health conditions that are related to COVID-related mortality. So those underlying health conditions that keep coming up in the literature over and over are cardiovascular disease, chronic lung disease, and diabetes. And, you know, in terms of like what subset of the population tends to have these chronic medical conditions or what subset of the population these chronic medical conditions are more prevalent and it's uh, in older adults. And what we're seeing is that within the United States, older adults, so I'm specifically talking about adults age 65 and older, they account for around 80% of COVID-related deaths here in the U.S., And the rate of hospitalization due to COVID increases with age. I think that the wording you're using is really important because it is about associated risk. It's not really a a general blanket statement that I've been hearing tossed around that older adults are more likely to get it by the fact that they're older, regardless Mm -hmm. of any other individual difference variables. Yeah. I was reading uh, a New York Times article that was published a few days ago. And in that article, it reported that 11% of COVID positive cases were of nursing home residents. But here is, I think, something interesting is we're talking about those individuals who might be more vulnerable or more susceptible to severe cases of COVID and uh, and death. 43% of COVID-related deaths are of nursing home residents. And and as I stated earlier, this is um, specifically for the United States. That's a large percentage there. It has been really wild reading about how fast COVID-19 is spreading through nursing homes and the impact it's having on the nursing home industry. And also seeing it from on a more personal level, having friends and family being personally impacted with either loved ones or themselves being in nursing homes and the fear 
that is associated with that setting. I mean, it is so scary to be in a nursing home right now because of these really high numbers. It's understandable. You know, you have a large number of people in one building. You know, you have nursing home staff. They have to go from room to room to care for people. It's a really high risk situation. And for many people in the nursing home, they might be immunocompromised. One thing that I found interesting in my review of the literature and my review of, you know, current news reports is that there was a lag in data collection in uh, long-term care in nursing homes. This was a, an article that I read both on AARP and then also on uh, NBCNews.com. There was variability in how often data is reported from nursing homes and from which setting. So I should state that states are required to report nursing home data related to COVID to the CDC. And it's that reporting that there is variability in. It really wasn't until the beginning of June that federal data on uh, COVID-19 in nursing homes was available to the public. This was put together and it's on a, a website compiled by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So June, the beginning of June, and this is very different from just the data from the general population uh, on the number of COVID cases and COVID-related deaths that the CDC has on their website. So for our listeners, if you haven't checked out this data, you can go to um, the CDC website and actually download data on the number of COVID cases and COVID-related deaths. And they also have it where you, you can look at the numbers by demographic characteristics, or demographic variables. And now on CMS website, they have the nursing home data. I just pulled it up um, as you were talking about it. And it is really incredible. I mean, first of all, it's cool to see a map of every single nursing home in the U.S. Um, but then also to see the total residence cases by state. I mean, they have so much information here that you can dive into. It is pretty alarming the numbers that I'm seeing here. And we'll, we can post this link to the website too. So you guys can have easy access to it. Yeah, um, definitely. So look in the, um, the show notes for this episode. It is wild that it wasn't made available until June because I remember reading about COVID-19's impact on the nursing home industry in general, like as soon as it started, maybe like as early as early March or late February. Yeah, I, I think I think that one of the largest outbreaks of COVID happened in a nursing home. I think it might have been in uh, Washington. I think that you're right. That was like the first big thing that happened with COVID-19 in the U.S. And speaking of ageism, as we were mentioning before, I'm thinking about how nursing homes is kind of commonly associated with older adults, but how it's not necessarily limited to older adults. Like you don't have to necessarily be 65 or older to live in a nursing home. Uh, you could be just not able to take care of yourself physically or have some kind of um, disability that prevents you from living at home or independently. And so uh, I think that speaks to like, this is not, COVID-19 is not 
something that only affects older adults and it's not spreading through nursing homes only because the residents are older adults. It's because it affects people who are either immunocompromised or are, have other medical conditions and that this setting is for the people who are some of the most vulnerable in our communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's also this misperception among people that that older adults are a homogenous group, you know, mm-hmm. that that once you reach the age, I don't know, some, some magic number, right? We now have set uh, the age of 65 being that point in which you turn an older adult. I'm using air quotes here, uh, <laughs> listeners. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that 65 is not, once you hit the age of 65, you still have, for so many people, a significant portion of your life left to live. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, so adults age 65 and over, I mean, let's even, let's go to like, you know, 65 to centenarian and mm-hmm. 100 and over. That's like almost 40 years there. And there's so much variability within the, the older adult age group. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember being a kid and thinking that old is old. You know, you just like hit this magical number where you are just a grandparent and you stay that way until you pass away. So for like 20, 30 years, you just are the exact same person. (laughs) You're just an old, older version of your younger self and you just hit this plateau. But like even the age cohort of older adults spans, yeah, like you said, four decades. I mean, what other age cohort spans that much time, right? So we have like childhood, young adulthood, and then regular adulthood. Is that the scientific <laughs> way of saying it? <laughs> but, you know, none of those age cohorts span as much time as the quote unquote older adulthood that no. often gets just lumped together, especially when, you know, you hear about it on the media and things like that. Yeah. Uh, I was reading an article that was recently published. The title of it is why does COVID-19 disproportionately affect older people? And it was written by uh, Amber Mueller, McNamara, and Sinclair. It was published in May of this year. We'll provide the citation in the show notes for listeners to be able to look at. But I felt like this was a really nice summary of various hypotheses about why COVID-19 is affecting older adults more so than any other age group. And there are a couple of reasons that really stood out to me that I thought I would share today. So as we age, there are changes that take place to the immune system. And when I say aging, you know, just like we were talking about, Rachel, how once you reach 65, it's not like you're, you know, that you're now this different, different person. Mm -hmm. Um, We are all aging, right? From the time that we are born until the time that we die, the aging process is happening. So over that aging process, these two changes take place in the immune system. The first one is that there is a gradual decline in immune function. And the second change that takes place is there's an increase in systemic inflammation. And I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm not an expert in this area, but 
I do feel like I've learned from this article that was written by Mueller and colleagues, and I would encourage folks to check it out because even though that this is not my area of research and I don't regularly read on things like this, though I should, it was very easy to understand. So one thing that they talk about in this paper is that super centenarians, so that super centenarians are individuals who are, have reached the age of 110 wow. um, and older. Uh, they cited a study that had, that had been published in 2019 that found that super centenarians don't experience the same declines in immune function like other subpopulations of older adults. So is that saying that when people hit the age of 110 and as they continue to age past that point, they no longer experience the same decline in immune functioning as they did throughout their life before? Or is it saying that people who, who are able to be super centurions or who, who live to be super centurions over their whole lifespan do not experience declines in immune functions the way that other people do? It's the latter. The latter. Okay. So, so yeah. So super centenarians, there's something about them that they don't experience the same declines over their lifetime like others do. And, you know, if you think about it, super centenarians, they have survived two pandemics. Wow. I didn't even put it in that context before that that could be possible. I have seen a few you know, really just heartwarming, feel-good news articles come out of centenarians and super centenarians who have recovered from COVID. This is really blowing my mind because it also points to how it is more about your immune system Mm -hmm. than age per se. It's just that usually your immune system declines in functioning as you age. And so again, it's like these individual variables that kind of split apart older adults from each other. They're not just like this one big group of people who, you know, have the exact same risk as each other. Right. Absolutely. Interesting. And so one factor that is related to immune function is vitamin D. Thank you to Mueller and colleagues Mm. who taught me this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they also talked about how, Previous research has suggested that around 50% of older adults are vitamin D deficient. And this is due to either lack of sun exposure or just the decrease in the body's production of vitamin D. And there have been studies uh, looking at vitamin D supplements and how effective they might be in preventing respiratory infections. These study results were mixed, but there was a recent meta-analysis done. Uh, I think they looked at like, I I can't remember if it was between 20 and 25 studies. They found that vitamin D supplements prevented about 20% of acute respiratory infections. And I should note that, you know, I'm not talking about within covid specifically, because this was, these were studies that were done prior to the pandemic, 
But I think this is important information for us to have because COVID affects the lungs and and respiratory function. So did you say so that around 50% of older adults are vitamin D deficient? Yep. I wonder how that compares to other age cohorts, like adults or young adults, children. I wonder. But this makes a lot of sense to me with the vitamin D and respiratory infection, because I actually did some research at MUSC or the Medical University of South Carolina with Lily Christian. We worked in the Cystic Fibrosis Center, and we did a project. We called it CF Seniors. So, you know, working with people who, with CF who lived past the median life expectancy age. So with CF, that has been dramatically improving recently, but it's still hovering around like 45 years is the median life expectancy. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, only 10 years ago, it was like in the early thirties or or late twenties. So there have been like a ton of medical uh, improvements that affect longevity and quality of life with people with cystic fibrosis. However, we were curious as to like the mental health impacts of living with this uh, sometimes debilitating disease for as long as these CF seniors had. And so because Part of CF is um, that your body has a really hard time absorbing fat-soluble vitamins. Vitamin deficiency is a big uh, indicator of overall physical health, but also mental health. Vitamin D deficiency is tied to increased depression, increased anxiety. So with as CF is you know, a respiratory distress condition, it was something that we found that vitamin D deficiency was absolutely tied with worse overall like physical health outcomes and, Mm -hmm. and their mental health outcomes too. And so I'm so used to thinking about it in the lens of working with people who have CF that it's also has a lot to do with older adulthood in general and just mental health overall, it seems. Mm -hmm. I did not know. I did not know that information, but that makes a lot of sense. You know, we just talked about kind of the changes that happen in immune function in the aging process, that gradual decline in immune function. But I also wanted to mention how that other change that we talked about, the increase in systemic inflammation is related to COVID and more severe cases of COVID. So in the later stage of COVID, this systemic inflammation might actually play a role. So we're going to get really sciencey here (laughs) and talk about cytokines. Uh, So cytokines are proteins that attack pathogens in the body. An uncontrolled inflammatory response that happens in the body is known as a cytokine storm. And the cytokine storm triggers inflammation in major organs. We're talking about lungs, the liver, kidneys, heart, and even the brain. And what we do know from research is that older adults are particularly prone to cytokine storms, though we don't really know why. So this is important because of the COVID deaths, one in two experienced a cytokine storm. So one in two people who have died from COVID experienced a cytokine storm. And over 80% of those who experienced a cytokine storm or 60 years and older. That is really interesting too. I have never heard of a cytokine storm before. 
Sounds like a really cool name for something that's also really terrible. So is systemic inflammation similar to immune functioning in that it gets worse over the trajectory of the lifespan? And so within older adults, you have worse inflammation because it has gotten worse gradually over time. I'm like picturing the slopes. Like yeah. Of it just yeah, that's my understanding from this article is that the systemic inflammation increases over time. And it's not something that like you turn 65 and all of a sudden you have it for the rest <laughs> of your life. Okay. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, it's really interesting to break this stuff down because, you know, you just you hear so much about how older adults are disproportionately affected by COVID-19. But I haven't really learned exactly why. What you hear is age and um, underlying medical conditions. Mm-hmm. Those are like the two things that you need to look out for. That If you're either an older adult or have an underlying medical condition, then you're at higher risk for poor outcomes um, with COVID-19. And so to really break down that first one, the older adulthood, like why that is a higher risk is very interesting. Yeah. And this actually brings me to, I think, uh, the final point that I want to um, to make something that I learned from this article is that some researchers do speculate that lifestyle factors that impact epigenetic age, so lifestyle factors like caloric intake, exercise, and all of those other, you know, health-related behaviors, that that might impact one's susceptibility to COVID. So when we're talking about epigenetic age, this is different from our biological age, right? So biological age is based on when you were born, (laughs) Mm -hmm. how old you are now. But epigenetic age is based on DNA methylation levels. There's a biological test that you can take um, to determine your epigenetic age. Oh, there's a test that you can take for that? Yeah. Oh, I would be nervous to take them, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Because is this also impacted by like stress and sleep and drinking water? The three things that I tell myself I'm going to do and then don't do? (laughs) (laughs) And so... Here's another factor that plays a part in why there are differences, you know, in susceptibility just within the older adult population. So, you know, some people who have multiple chronic diseases, unhealthy lifestyle factors, they may have a higher epigenetic age than their biological age, right? So maybe their biological age is like 70, but their epigenetic age is more like 79. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So your epigenetic age is a more important factor in your susceptibility to COVID-19 or poor outcomes of COVID-19 than your biological age. Mm-hmm. It could be. Scientists are continuing to do research on these topics to understand why some older adults are more susceptible to COVID um, than others. And I think that this paper does a really good job of 
outlining all the various hypotheses that need to be further explored. But yeah, absolutely could definitely be related. It's also um, thinking about this age population where the epigenetic age is 65 and older rather than biological age. You know, I'm sure those, the Venn diagram overlaps quite a bit, but it's not a circle. Mm -hmm. And that is something that seems to be more impactful with COVID-19 than your biological age. So organizations, the CDC and others, they have encouraged older adults and those with underlying health conditions to stay home. So by no means do I think that leaders and scientists in the field intentionally meant to lump all older adults together. But this has created this perception that, like you were talking about earlier, Rachel, that COVID-19 is an older person's illness or a virus. Mm -hmm. And so this has contributed to ageism. And I was reading an article back in May in the UK they were stating that adults age 70 and older were going to be told to quarantine or self-isolate at home for four months. And I was just reading another article published in June about, you know, how to help in the UK, how to help your older family members who are self-isolating at home and some guidelines to follow to continue to keep them safe. You know, I, I know that I I just have to believe that these policies that have been enacted, these slogans, these, you know, this information that's being shared, it's meant to, it's all, you know, with good intention, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's meant to protect older adults or protect, you know, more vulnerable populations, but it can also be seen as patronizing. It also just reinforces this misperception that all older adults are the same, that all older adults are vulnerable, which is just not true. Mm -hmm. Well, it does seem like the older adult population is on average at higher risk for poor outcomes due to COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And that the um, the mortality rates related to COVID-19 are higher in this age cohort. But in describing these average differences, what's getting lost are the, well, it's reinforcing existing ageist stereotypes that older adults cannot take care of themselves, that they are frail, that, they, that it should not even like even be much of a bother for them to stay at home for four months. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of older adults that work and are doing really important work, whether it's in their community or if it's like a they're going to work every day for like a paid job. Um, And so like these sweeping policies are not reflective of, the again, the diversity within this age group. No, you're absolutely right. And it also sort of misses that point where we were talking about earlier, the percentage of COVID related deaths that occurred in the nursing home. What did I say? It was over 40%. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it might be that those individuals that are in nursing homes with these chronic health conditions, decreased immune function, those are sort of the population that tends to be more susceptible. I don't know. 
Um, you know, I certainly don't also don't want to stereotype or, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, individuals who are in a nursing home, but there, there, like we talked about, there are other factors that make a facility like that more of a, a high risk situation just because of the conditions. That makes a lot of sense to me. And something else that I'm noticing is that with this second wave of COVID-19 spreading, spreading through the U.S., what they're reporting is that the average age of people who have COVID-19 who are being admitted to the hospital is getting lower and lower as time goes on and that they don't know why. You know, what you were talking about a few minutes ago, I think gets to this idea about the social value of older adults. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think people often forget that. And I mean, since this is a geropsychology podcast, we might be speaking to the choir about this, <laughs> but it is so common for me to hear this even in my personal life, like with friends. It is, I have been surprised by how many people say really ageist stuff about like, well, they're going to die soon anyway. I'm like, I cannot believe how pervasive beliefs like this are. Yeah. Well, this makes me think about something that I read about in the news in late March, and I'm not going to get, you know, talk about politics, but it was a politician who, to sum it up, and I'll post a, a link to the article in the show notes, he is 69 years old or was 69 years old at the time of this report. He was talking about sort of weighing the economy versus public health uh, and safety. And was saying, you know, as an older adult, I feel like I should have some say uh, in what happens, you know, whether or not we close down the economy, you know, whether we have these stay at home orders, or if people should continue to work or return to work. And I'll quote here what was in the article, the news article. He said, no one reached out to me and said, as a senior citizen, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that all America loves for your children and grandchildren? And he said, and if that's the exchange, I'm all in. That doesn't make me noble or brave or anything like that. I just think there are lots of grandparents out there in this country like me. And so there's this sort of notion of self-sacrifice or sacrificing older adults mm -hmm. for the economy and for the younger generation, mm -hmm. which, you know, I, I don't think that he meant this to, as a remark, to sort of feed into this, these ageist beliefs. But it kind of does. Yeah, especially the way that he's framing it, it's, it's only related to age, right? So he's not talking to the entire U.S. population of we all should be willing to sacrifice ourselves for the economy by putting ourselves out there. He's saying that older adults specifically should or perhaps are willing to sacrifice their life for their grandchildren, kind of placing a higher value on their grandchildren's life than the grandparent is something that I read into a statement like that, which yeah. is, you know, again, when you think about the largeness of like the um, vastness, yes, the vastness <laughs> of this age cohort. I mean, it is like four decades of people that we just lump together and say older adults, but 40 
years. I mean, so he's, you know, so someone could be 65 and live 40 more years and contribute to society for 40 more years. Um, and it's just wild to me that there's this language as if their life is worth sacrificing because they might not have much of it left or because they have less to contribute or less time to contribute than people who are younger than them. Mm -hmm. I mean, because like if it was 40 years, okay, so we're talking about people who fall into like 65, so let's just like round to like 105, just for my arithmetic mental math sake. <laughs> so if COVID-19 was disproportionately affecting people ages 30 to 70 or zero to 40, would we be using language like this? Would anyone be using language like that on national television that people should just go out and, I mean, I just think that's, that's what our idea is about how to decrease the spread. Would that be different? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, you really have to wonder. Yeah. And like, so you mentioned that there is the policy in the UK that people 70 and above should be home quarantined for four months. Would that, because of, to protect them, you know, because overall higher or older adults are at higher risk. And, but if the group of people that was at highest risk was like zero to 40, or again, 30 to 70, would people be so quick to enact policies like that? Like, okay, if you are between 30 and 70, then you need to stay at home for four months. Mm -hmm. that's, that's our policy. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I found that, oh, I just, I really hate to bring it up because it, it is, I, I feel that it's so disgusting, but I just have to because it's part of the conversation that we're having here is this term boomer remover. It started on social media. I've seen I, that hashtag. Yeah. Oh gosh. It started on social media, I think on Twitter, maybe by younger folks. It's hashtag boomer remover. And that's kind of the term that they're using for COVID. This idea that um, this is an older person's virus that it's going to oh I just I can't even <laughs> I can't even bring myself to say it, it well I, I think this idea of like boomer remover is like they're saying that COVID-19 is due to the high mortality rates of COVID-19 in older adulthood it's like quote-unquote getting rid of older adults who are I guess it's believed that it's like holding back like older adults are holding back society or preventing society from being more progressive yeah. Um, and it's like, this is a good thing. Um, Ugh, doesn't that feel awful to say out loud? Yeah, I didn't even, I thought I could describe it, but it just is really bleak. <laughs> really disheartening it's to so think about it. Cause I've also seen so many people use it and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, this also brings me to another point that I found in my review of the literature so Dr. Sharon Inouye, who is a geriatrician at Harvard Medical School and Hebrew Senior Life, she and some colleagues looked at the clinicaltrials.gov website. And for those listeners who aren't familiar with this website, it is a website that lists all uh, approved clinical trials that are being conducted. This They reviewed 241 interventional studies on COVID. These are studies that are testing drugs and vaccines and devices. 
And I was shocked to learn what they found. So they found that um, about 15% of the studies are directly excluding older adults. So like a blanket statement, age 65 or 75 or 80 are not eligible to participate in the study. And another 12% are likely to exclude older adults just due to the study design or other factors. Like, for example, you know, there are some studies that are excluding individuals with chronic medical conditions that are prevalent, more prevalent in older adults and also more prevalent in racial and ethnic minority populations. So I'm talking about like hypertension and diabetes, and they are excluding individuals with these conditions, even if they are well controlled. Another exclusionary criteria that is part of study designs that is going to indirectly exclude older adults is for some studies, the participants to be eligible for the study, they have to have technology or internet access in the home. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a huge barrier to a lot of people. It is. It is. So we've talked about how this is a population that's disproportionately affected by COVID and For many studies, they're not including these individuals in drug trials, in testing drugs and vaccines and devices. So basically, this testing is being done on the people least likely to have poor outcomes from COVID-19. Yeah, yeah. Assuming we're all equally susceptible to having COVID-19, that the people who are going to be most affected by the virus in terms of their physical health and symptoms are not being included in the studies that are supposed to help them the most. Right. It's really something. I mean, I can empathize with kind of systemic limitations that might not be the individual investigator's fault, you know, of not being allowed to run tests on certain age groups or cohorts of people, but, but for so many to not include them at all. And for all of these exclusionary criteria, it's really disheartening. Yeah. And, you know, by no means do I think that the PIs of these studies, you know, meant to be ageist (laughs) when putting Mm -hmm. together their study design. I think it's just, unfortunately, ageism is not something that is brand new, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's one of those isms that's more socially acceptable than any other ism. And it's just so ingrained in the way that we think and uh, in our beliefs. It's just, it's really unfortunate. But I do want us to end on a positive note. So I do want to mention that I have been so happy to see these really heartwarming stories of individuals and communities coming together to put together volunteer services for older adults who are isolating self-quarantining at home during this time. That has just been so wonderful to see. I found there's a website put together. It's on the University of California, San Francisco, their geriatrics department of medicine. They have some really nice resources for older adults during the COVID pandemic there. And it can, it links you to like local resources in San Francisco and in California for like crisis relief, food, internet medications, safety and security, 
You know, I've seen reports come out about, like I said, just various individuals and communities coming together to put together services to help older people at home with shopping. So that's my positive for this episode. (laughs) That is a positive. I have been really astounded by how creative people have been in caring for older adults during this time. Like you said, putting different programs together, some like friendship hotlines I've seen are really cool where you can like sign up to call isolated older adults and just chat with them and provide them like company and support and and learn their stories. I also read an uplifting article recently. I think it was the New York Times where they talked about older adults who are thriving in quarantine. And they interviewed a lot of older adults who are describing all the new hobbies that they're picking up and showing pictures of them in their homes and how they're spending their time. Because it does seem to have a more negative slant in the news, I think. Mm Um, But the fact is that, you know, there are some people who who are doing okay, and also to really demonstrate the resiliency of older adulthood and that people are engaged and trying new things and and learning new things and also can can adapt to really difficult situations. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening today. Again, we would appreciate any comments, any questions, any thoughts on the stuff that we talked about today or suggestions for additional topics to cover in future episodes. You can send us a message at www.thegeropsychologypodcast.com or go to Twitter and tweet us (laughs) (laughs) at the Gero Podcast and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to see those. (laughs) Yes. What do they say? Uh, Rate and subscribe. That impacts our numbers too. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time. 